Good morning, church. Our reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also, you, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Thank you, Debbie. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your great love for us. As we read earlier, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which you loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ. We thank you that we have been buried and raised with Christ. We ask that you would help us in these moments together to see what you want us to see, to feel what you want us to feel, to believe what you want us to believe, and by your grace and the power of your spirit to be the people you're calling us to be, to do what you would have us to do. And so would you use everything in these moments together this morning to build us up, to see Jesus as our great Savior. So Spirit, would you come, show us Christ, and satisfy us with him. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Colossians 2, and we'll be working through verses 8 through 15 today, and just a reminder from the verses right above that, right? Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's what we're going to be talking about really all the rest of this series. What does it mean to belong to Christ and to walk in him? And how does that make a difference in the way that we live today, tomorrow, and the next day? And today, there is one command. We noted last week there's the first command of the whole letter, which was, so walk in him. There's a command, one command, in this text for today. And so we're going to kind of focus through that lens, and then there will be plenty of other commands in the verses and sermons that follow. The command from this one is in verse 8. Take a look back at that one. See to it. That's the one. <laughs> See to it that what? So it's like, make sure that no one takes you captive by philosophy 
and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits or the elements of the world, and not according to Christ. That is the command. That's the, okay, what are we supposed to do? What difference should it make that I've gone to church today, or at least heard the sermon part of church today? See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elements of the world, and here's the the key, not according to Christ. Because there are those out there, and sometimes even those maybe that work their way in here, who fly under the banner Christianity and Christian, but what they are selling us, what they are selling you, is something else. In their effort sometimes to sell you more, more spirituality, more spiritual fullness, if you will, more freedom from the powers of this age. They're actually selling you something other than Christ. And anything other than Christ is less than Christ and is not Christian. And so how do we know counterfeits? How can we know? Well, how do you know counterfeits in other ways? And that got me thinking this week about counterfeit money. How do they find counterfeit money? It's gotten easier in the last 20 years or so when they changed the bills. We're talking about Federal Reserve notes, right? You know what I'm talking about? Paper money. How do they find? Sir? You know the original so well, you can tell Right. You know the original. That comes from a man who used to work in a bank, right? <laughs> you know the original so well that as soon as you get the fake, you can touch it. You can feel that difference. You know it. I learned this week that there's even a training course available online from the government on how to know our money so well, I don't have any uh, with me, uh, to know our money so well, and we'll just know it from looking at pictures, okay, um, that you can spot a counterfeit. And that's what they do. They teach you about real money. And they give you tips like look for things that are further apart than they should be. But how do you know something's further apart than it should be? Right? We're all catching this, right? It's just warm in here. Okay. Good. So they teach you about real money as much as a Federal Reserve note is real money. But that is a different discussion entirely. (laughs) And that course (laughs) takes you through... Each bill, right, each denomination, which in that uh, instance is not a group of churches, but each different amount of dollars that in theory that piece of paper is worth. And they go through each one noting the special coloring of the bill. When I was a kid, they were all the same. They were all the same color, right? But in about 2004, that changed. Now there's different hues in there, different colors, reds and blues as you go across the bill. 
There's also color shifting ink in certain spots where the number will be gold this way and a different color another way depending on what year that one came from. There are watermarks. It's like, boy, you don't even see it until you like hold it up to the light. And also the security thread, which they talked about how in fakes people will, you know, print a color that's like the security thread color on there, but it's called a security thread for a reason because it's actually threaded into the fabric of the paper. And if your mind was just blown, then you're welcome. It's like paper, but how is it? It's like, yes, they actually weave different threads into the fabric of the paper. It's pretty cool. You can go on it today. I don't remember what the website is, and that's not the point at all of the sermon. But the point is this. The best way to spot a fake is to know the real one. That's true in money, and that is true with Christ. And that is Paul's approach here. How do we know counterfeits when it comes to spiritual things and eternal realities? How do we not get fooled? And the problem here in this text, and the problem for us today, the Colossians were in danger of being fooled by people who were promising them spiritual fullness and freedom from dark spiritual powers. And these promises are so enticing because they sound so good, right? Who wouldn't want spiritual freedom, right? I mean, do you, do you feel like, oh, I can't really get power over my sin? Do you ever feel that way? Well, there's somebody ready to sell you something. Who wouldn't want spiritual freedom from sin? Spiritual power over the dark forces that are at work in this world. Don't you want to be rid of your sin, your weakness? For only 149, right? How do we know? How do we not get fooled? We know the real Christ, who he is, what he has done, and who we are in him. It's not just that I went to Sunday school and learned some facts that one time. So Jesus is this and this and this. Okay. It's through long experience, right? It wasn't with the bank. It wasn't a one-time study, right? It's that daily use of the real thing. That daily relationship, in this case, with the real thing, the real Christ who helps us to see the fakes, who helps us to see the counterfeits who would pull us away from him. And so the key in verse 8 is not according to Christ. That's what we don't want to be taken captive by. Any philosophy that is not according to Christ. That's how you'll know the stuff that sounds good but is spiritually bankrupt. There are lies just to get power and control over you or money from you. They are not according to Christ. And so Paul is going to walk us through who the real Christ is, what he has done for us, and who we are in him. So the big idea then this morning is this. When we find ourselves longing for spiritual fullness and freedom, do you ever find yourself there? We need to run to Christ remembering who he is, what he has done, and who we are in him. 
And that's gonna be the way we work through the rest of the message this morning. So first, who Christ is. When we find ourselves longing for spiritual fullness and freedom, we need to run to Christ. Who is he? What do we need to remember about Christ? Look at verse nine. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We've seen this idea already in Colossians, Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and it takes it even a step further, bodily. This is a reference to the incarnation of Christ, that God himself, who created everything and is so high above us, in Christ he came to live in a body. And in that body, he lived a perfect life. In that body, he died a bloody, sacrificial, atoning death on the cross. And in that body, he rose again on the third day, never to die again. All the fullness of God dwells bodily in Christ. That is who he is. He is nothing less than God in the flesh. He's not a really good teacher. He's not some sort of spiritual guru that inspired a movement. He's not even a, a martyr whose sacrifice sparked a new religion. He is God in the flesh who lived and died and rose Again, so Christ is God in the flesh, but Christ is also the head of all rule and authority. If he really is God and all the fullness of deity dwells bodily in him, then he is the head of all rule and authority. That's the last half of verse 10. Christ is the head of all rule and all authority. Again, we've seen this concept earlier uh, look back for me, it's just the facing page on verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's the head of all rule and authority. Those are the same words there at the end, rulers and authorities in verse 16. Christ is where everything comes from, and Christ is where everything is going. And that's one of the ways that we learn to spot a fake. It's not according to Christ. Christ is the center of God's plan for the universe. And so if what's being held out to us is a different plan, a different solution, a better technique than Christ dying a bloody sacrificial death on the cross for our, for our sins and rising again the third day and coming for us one day to take us home to be with him. If the solution is different than that, it is not Christian. Christ is where everything comes from and where everything is going. So from this text, that's who he is. He is God in the flesh. He's the head of all rule and authority, but he's also the Savior, but we'll explore that under what Christ has done. 
What is it that Christ has done? Through his death and resurrection, he saved sinners and defeated the devil and any other rival spiritual powers. And we see that near the end of our text, the reference to those rivals. Verse 15, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we have, he's the head of all rule and authority in verse 10. He's not just the head. He is the one who has triumphed over them. In Christ, God triumphed over the authorities and put them to open shame. Like what kind of authorities is this talking about? Well, this was promised really all the way back in the Garden of Eden after the fall. With the curse on the serpent, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, this is God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Sometimes I'm tempted to think about salvation mainly in like personal terms. Like I'm a sinner who needs a savior Isn't a good thing that Jesus did that. Now, that's all true, right? And that's important. And that's really vital for us. But it is also not the complete picture of what Christ has done. Even from Genesis 3, it's not just, oh yeah, sin is a problem. Jesus is going to come to do something about that. That's not what the words say. It says that he will crush the head of the serpent. He will kill that serpent. He will destroy and dominate that serpent. And that theme is picked up in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Again, speaking of his incarnation and his victory, which are the main themes that we have in our text today. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That is what Jesus came to do. Not just, well, we needed somebody to forgive us and he just loves us so much. It's true, we need someone to forgive us and he loves us so much. He is also the conquering king above all rulers, all authorities, and he has triumphed over them through his cross. He indeed has crushed the head of the serpent as his heel was bruised on the cross. He came to destroy the works of the destroyer. And he did it through his death on the cross. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. You want freedom from the powers? Christ has won it for you. And you experience it through your union with him. So when we think about spiritual powers, and they're out there, right? When we think about a world that we can't see, what would Paul have us think about? What would God have us remember when we think about powers, whether angels or demons or even the devil himself, that spiritual unseen realm? 
Well, with apologies to Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, God doesn't care for us to know or consider who our guardian angel is. If he did, he would have said a lot more than nothing in the Bible about it. He doesn't care about who our guardian angel is. I don't know for sure whether you have one or not. He wants us to remember that Christ has already won the decisive victory on the cross. He has defeated the powers, all of them. And he will come again. And everyone will know who he is in all his glory. He's given the name that's above every name. Even the ones who had seemed to be working dark forces in our world today. He has triumphed over them through his cross, through his death. That's normally not how we think about triumph, right? Winning means winning the battle by killing the other person, right? By subduing them. But how did he win? He won through his cross, through that deep magic of Aslan. That as the innocent one died, the power of death was broken. And so who are we in Christ? It's who he is. He's God in the flesh. He's the head, the ruler of all rulers and authorities. He has triumphed in his cross. He is the savior. This is what he has done. And so who are we in Christ? What difference does it make for us? So when we hear like, okay, this is how you can be spiritually fulfilled, like for real this time. This is where you can really get power over your sin struggle. And this is what the Colossians were hearing. We'll see more about that next week as we move towards some more application of this truth. But before he gets there, he's like, I want you to see who Christ is again. (laughs) Which itself is instructive for us. He's already told us most of these things in chapter one. Now for us, chapter one was a couple weeks ago. But when you're reading this through, as I hope many of us are doing every week, when you read it through, chapter one's like three, four minutes ago, right? Where you go like, oh, I've seen that word. I've seen rulers and authorities before. I've seen that he's the head. I remember that Christ is first. Even if maybe you don't remember a sermon from three or four weeks ago, I hardly remember my sermons from three or four weeks ago. So there's no pressure there, okay? But as you're reading, you go, oh yeah, that's who he is. Oh, it must be important to him. It must be almost like they're gonna forget. Almost like sometimes we forget who he is, what he has done, and who we are in him. So from this text, who are we in Christ? First, we are filled. We are filled. There's a little word play, so we'll read verse 9 with verse 10. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. You have been filled in him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read, I'm filled in him, it's like, I'm not quite sure what to think about that. Do any of you feel that? It's like, well, I'm, I'm filled. It's like, that's not a normal word we think of when we think about who we are in Christ. 
right? We might be alive in Christ, that's coming up. We might die with Christ, that's coming up next week. We're buried with him in baptism. We've got all these like categories we know. But we are filled in him, and that's kind of the heading for all the rest of the stuff that comes. The King James Version of it has, we are complete in him. I appreciate the uh, filled, because it is related to fullness that's right before, and it's hard to catch word plays um, in English sometimes, and so that's cool that it's there. I think complete also gets at that idea. So you think, what does it mean when we talk about being fulfilled or filled up? We have everything that we need. That's the idea here. All the fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily, and we have been filled, like already done. You want spiritual fullness? You actually have it in Christ through your connection with him. We are filled. We have been filled in him. We've been filled up to the point where he is all we need and he is all we want. There's a saying that's used around here, like around here, around here. We all we got, we all we need, right? Some of you can finish that. Uh, For those who don't know, that's a sports thing. I try not to do that too much. That's kind of my natural go-to. But that's a sports thing. It's been used by quite a few teams, not least of which is the Eagles. It means that no one else is going to help us, and we don't need their help anyway, right? It's kind of like the, they don't like us, we don't care. No one likes us, we don't care. It's like related, okay? We all we got, we all we need. Everyone can doubt us, everyone can try to stop us, but we are enough. For the Christian, though, we know that that doesn't work for life. That's a cool, like, pump you up to play football thing. Maybe. I've never really played football. Other than the rough touch that we used to do, for those of you old-timers here, accent on the rough. Sorry, that was a deep cut. It might pump up people to play football, but we know as those who belong to Christ that that does not work for life, and it certainly doesn't work for eternity. If we're all we got, we're in a heap of trouble. Instead, our cry is, he's all we got, and he is all we need. We need nothing other than Christ and him crucified and risen for us. So how do we avoid those attractive but ultimately empty philosophies of the world? To kind of switch the story from sports to food, we avoid empty philosophy that wouldn't fill us up or would fill us up in wrong ways like we avoid empty calories. He said, that's not a good analogy because I never do that. <laughs> well, just, just think about like if you did. How do we do that? 
Now, one good thing, as, as one of the men pointed out in our study uh, recently on Tuesday nights, like, I just don't have it in the house and then I can't eat it. That helps. Like, that goes a long way, right? If you know you have a weakness, it's like, don't have it around. So there's something, and there's definitely something to that. But one of the ways to make sure you don't eat all of what's in the fridge is that you're already full of something really good, right? We understand this working in reverse. If you fill up on empty calories at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and then you sit down to dinner at 6 or 6.30, only kids would do this. So it's kids who fill up on empty calories, right? We'll just pretend it's only kids, okay? They fill up on the empty calories, and then they're sitting there at the table, and then, kids, what do you say when that good, delicious meal that one of your parents has spent a long time preparing and getting ready for you, it's all there on the table, what do you say? I'm, what? I'm full, I'm not hungry, right? And you mean it, right? You really are full, and that food that's so good and good for you is not appetizing, and the best thing to do is flip it, right? Eat the thing first that's good for you. And some of you go, no, I have a dessert pocket. I'm always fine. I can do that, right? I can make it work. At least for me, the best way to not eat dessert is to eat enough of dinner. Because you bring out dessert right afterwards, and I am not ready. I am not ready for it. Uh, it can be a challenge in a family when one person grew up having dessert immediately, and another grew up like maybe having it two hours later or not at all. Don't ask how I know. <laughs> the best way to not be fooled, to not be drawn away to the things that don't actually fill you up is to realize that you are filled and then to be filled, to remember that you are filled with Christ, your Savior, that he is all you have, and he is all you need. And so what is that good that we get with him that fills us up? Because it's still, it's like, okay, I know not to eat empty calories, but I'm still not sure how like counterfeit Christianity is empty calories compared with the fullness of Christ. What is it that we get when we are in him? Well, from this text, first we get a new heart. Verse 11, in him. Notice all the in hymns in here as we read. In Christ, through our union with Christ, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now circumcision was the outward sign of entrance into the old covenant community. But the terms of the new covenant enacted by Christ are different. Christianity doesn't start on the outside. It starts on the inside with the heart. Now, it's not that the Lord didn't care about your heart before. In fact, he cared very deeply in the old covenant about people's hearts. But the law didn't bring anything that could change them. The law was powerless to change people's hearts. And so Moses, way back in Deuteronomy, in his sermon at the end of his life, he told the people of Israel that one day the Lord would indeed circumcise their hearts. This becomes the promise of the new covenant. Deuteronomy 36, 
He says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And if you know your Deuteronomy at all, you know there's a command like 25, 24 chapters before this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And here he says at the end, here's how that's actually going to go down. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. How does that happen? When does that happen? In Christ. As we are united to Christ. That's exactly what Paul describes here. The point of the circumcision being done without hands is that God is the one who does it. It's not about something external. It's about the new covenant promise of getting a new heart. And those who have a new heart get baptized as a sign of their burial with Christ and the resurrection life that they have in Christ. So we get a new heart. And those who are alive, because they have a new heart that's that heart of flesh now instead of the heart of stone, a heart that will listen and attend to God's word, a heart that wants to live according to God's word, is accompanied by a resurrection life. So look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We have been raised to new life with Christ. Again, a fruit of our union with him, that we are united to him in his death and in his resurrection. And that's what we're saying when we get baptized. I belong to Christ alone. I am united with him in his death, and I'm buried with him, and I am raised with him to walk in newness of life. And we don't just make up that language or pull it from just anywhere, right? It's from Romans 6, 3, and 4, a passage that sounds very similar to Colossians 2, 12, and 13 here. Says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And that'll lead to exhortations down the line in Romans on not presenting yourselves as slaves to sin because you don't belong to sin anymore. You can present yourselves as slaves to Christ because we are alive to God in Christ. Romans 6.11, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. How? In Christ Jesus. And this concept of being united with Christ in his death and his life becomes the ground of the majority of the exhortations that we'll see as we move forward in this series in Colossians 3. We have a new heart. We have resurrection life. We also have from this text full forgiveness that comes with a clean record. And all this is good news for us. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us 
all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this is what we needed. He mentions in verse 13 that we were dead in our trespasses, the uncircumcision of our flesh, our old life, our old way. But he has forgiven us all our trespasses, every one of them. Every one of us has crossed the line where God has said, no, we've said, thank you very much. I'm on my way. Wait. Where God says, yes, we say, "Mm, not today. I got really good reasons not to do it now or the next day or the next day or the next day. But that incredibly long list of line crossing that deserves God's righteous wrath, that list of line crossing was nailed to the cross. And we carry the weight of it no more. In Christ. That's what he has done for us on the cross. That record of debt, it was real. It's not just like, oh, there was a paper up there. It kind of said a couple things. They're not a big deal. God pretty much should like me anyway. That's not how that works. We were rebels to his crown, living life our own way and for ourselves. But Christ came. The record of debt was real. It was against us, but just like the rulers and authorities, it was no match for Jesus. Satan would even join in with his accusations because that's what he does, as we sang about earlier. When the devil roars his empty threats, why are they empty? Because Christ has removed their power. Christ has provided forgiveness for us through his taking that record for himself as he was on the cross and he left it nailed there to be brought up against us no more. So Satan would join in with his accusations because that's what he does, accusing us, trying to claim us. But Christ, through his cross, defeated Satan Satan and claimed us for his own. And so all our sins, every one of them, they're forgiven. God has raised us with Christ by his power. So how do we get spiritual freedom? How do we get spiritual fullness in Christ? We have died with him, been buried with him, been raised with him. We are forgiven all our sins through what he has accomplished for us. And he reigns even now as the head of all rulers and authorities and powers. And one day he is coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So how does all this blessing come to us? How are we in Christ. Verse 12 tells us, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's how. By faith. We are raised from the dead through faith. We are united to Christ by faith. We are granted a justified status, declared righteous before God, not on the basis of our works, but by our faith in the powerful work of God. Not in ourselves, but in him. And so a question, are you trusting in Christ? Who he is, what he has done. If not, you can trust him today. If you're just kind of like, well, I wanted to see what all this Christian stuff is about. But you have not yet been united to Christ by faith, been born again, been made alive, raised with Christ. Today can be your day. If you confess your sins, Repent of your sins, turning away from living life your own way according to your own rules, according to your own ideas, and trusting in Christ and his work alone for your salvation. If you are trusting in who Christ is, what he has done, all that he is for you, then all of this is true you. You have a new heart. You have a resurrection life that can't be snuffed out, that death can't even stop. You have full forgiveness and a clean record because the record that was against you was nailed to the cross. So when we find ourselves longing for spiritual fullness and freedom, we must run to Christ, the real Christ, as he's revealed in his word. We run to him over and over and over again because of how quickly we forget. Because we must remember who he is, what he has done, and who we are in him. It's a new heart, resurrection life, full forgiveness and a clean record, all of which we have in Christ, that gives us spiritual fullness and freedom from those powers who would dominate us. When sin lurks and Satan prowls, remember that Christ rules and that you are filled in him. You don't need whatever that sin has to offer. You don't need it. You are filled in him. You don't need another plan or program to overcome the power of Satan or any other power because Christ is enough. So how do we think about counterfeits then? We're going to talk about a few and then we'll be done. If something is not leading you toward Christ, who he is, what he has done, and who we are because of what he has done, that is not Christianity. It might claim to be Christianity, might sound like Christianity, but it's not. So when you hear some spiritual guru say, I finally figured out the secret. Everyone's been reading the Bible for 2,000 years, but I have figured it out. Run. When someone's peddling the way to spiritual wholeness, the secret to the dynamic spiritual life, when their emails come with words like, few people know this, it's on a great deal right now. Run. 
what kind of philosophy or empty deceit human tradition based on the elements of this world and not according to Christ? One of them, since it's Reformation Day, I had to do this today. One of them would be penance, right? Who came up with that? It's not in the Bible. But the idea that like someone can decide this many our fathers and this many Hail Marys and you're good to go. God will be happy with you again. That makes sense because if we're being honest, we would like to know that we're in good with God. And it's in us to want to do something about it. And so what has developed is a lot of human tradition to help you know and help you feel that Christ is enough. Really, it's to help you feel that you have done enough. But that's an empty lie. Because no matter what we do, it could never be enough. It could never be deep enough or long enough to make up for the price of our rebellion against the king. So I picked on Catholicism for a minute. Like, I'm never, I would never fall for that. But think about how you fall for it in your heart. And how we think, okay, what do I have to do? How long do I have to wait until God can be pleased with me again? Do you ever do this where there's a sin like in the afternoon or the evening and you're like, I just have to be like messed up for the rest of the night. But tomorrow, like I'll read my Bible, I'll pray, I'll really confess, but I just know like God can't really be happy with me until it's just, when we're thinking that way, we're falling for it. Right, so this isn't just like, oh, those Catholics, unbelievable. All that stuff makes sense. It's human tradition. It doesn't work. It's empty. And it's in us. So whether it's penance or any other human wisdom that the Catholic Church peddles, and some of these, you're going to think, like, that's ridiculous. No one would fall for that. Let me just tell you, there are people who are worshiping here now and people who have worshiped here in the past and are no longer worshiping here and other people I know who have fallen for every one of these things. So it's not out there. This is not a rant about all the bad that's out in the world and how that could never come to us. So whether it's Harold Camping and Family Radio, for some of you this is history, kids, kids are too young for this, that was like 2011, okay, saying that he figured out, like he read his Bible more carefully than everyone who had read the Bible before, figured out when the rapture and the second coming of Christ would be, which were going to be six months apart in May, I guess five months apart, May and October of 2011, that the Spirit had left the church, and so you should leave your church and not be part of a church because the Spirit's not in the church. The Spirit is in the radio waves from family radio and you and your house. So you should sit at home. In fact, maybe you should sell a lot of your stuff and give money to our ad campaign to let everyone know about the rapture that's coming. Those of you who were here, and it was all over the East Coast at least, do you remember those billboards? <laughs> They spent millions and millions of dollars of duped people's money saying that on May 21st, 
the rapture was coming. All of, for, you know, for those of you who don't remember that, all of that really happened. Thankfully, so then, that one's a tricky one, right? So then they doubled down after the rapture didn't happen and said it was a secret rapture. Now, I've heard of a secret rapture, right? But I didn't know it was so secret that even those raptured wouldn't know. But that's what happened. And then five months later, it's like, okay, this is it. It's the end of the world. We don't need to try to tell anybody anything because after the rapture happened, no one's spiritual condition can change. And this is all real. I mean, it's not, but it's, you know what I mean. Okay? Then after that, thankfully, after the world did not end and the calendar turned from October 21st to 22nd, I think it took a couple days, but Harold Camping did repent. And before he died, he recognized, I was wrong. I was reading the Bible wrong. And Christ is the hope that we have to have. So he was not as audacious as the guy that I can't remember the name of right now who wrote 88 Reasons That Jesus Will Return in 1988. It was kind of a bestseller. It was so good, even though wrong, that he decided to do a sequel. He found one more. 89 reasons that Jesus is going to come back in 1989. Right? That's some audacity right there. I wish I had that guy's confidence. (laughs) And that is, that's insane. Right? But people fell for it, even though Jesus told us particularly. So it's like, how do you know? How do you know it's wrong? It's right here. It was right here the whole time. Jesus said, nobody knows. It's like, oh, but I do because I read the Bible more carefully than you. It's like, no, you didn't. You didn't. And we need to be ready. And I don't know if the next one will be about the rapture. I know with the atrocities that are going on in the Middle East right now, that has heightened attention and heightened thinking about end times. But it's uh, part of what I'm trying to point out is it's not new. And the point isn't for us to focus on all those things to figure it all out. It's to trust Christ alone. A few years after Harold Camping, uh, some dude connected blood moons to important events for the nation of Israel and found that there would be four blood moons in just one year. I think it was 2015. So get ready for something really big for Israel because of the blood moons. One of the things that he failed to notice is that not all of those blood moons would even be visible from Israel. They were all visible from the U.S., though. It's like... So God would reveal to America, because of course, what his plan is for the Middle East through the red moons. But that's another one that's like, what do you think about this? Oh, I bought the book. Oh, just like, no, no. Or whether it's someone telling you how to get rid of generational curses, including fixing your anger issues or your spouse's anger issues based on an obscure Old Testament teaching, not emphasizing Christ, but instead emphasizing the power of our own words to rule our lives. And to make sure then that we use the right formula so the curse that somebody pronounced over us a while ago can now be undone. If you just say these words, if you just, and this is how it came to me, if you just come to this conference, they'll say the right things, 
they'll say the right words. If we can just get this person to this conference, everything will be okay. There is no conference that that's good, that's that good. It's not. Especially one that's promising. You will never struggle with this again after we undo this curse that has been placed on you. Or whether, as seems to be the case in Colossae, whether it's adopting a sort of legalistic self-discipline as the path to spiritual wholeness, like Paul will address later in this chapter. Right? What's underneath all of it? I figured it out. I've read the Bible better, more deeply, than everyone in the history of Christianity, and I've figured out the secret. Usually there is some like monetization uh, connected to this. But they're promising a path to spiritual freedom and spiritual power, spiritual fullness. So how do we not fall for it? How do we not fall for the lie that if we just get our lives more organized, we will be fulfilled and whole? Now, by all means, get your life more organized. It's a real problem. I have no idea. Right? So it doesn't mean there are, that every tip is wrong, but the promise is what's wrong. Right? The promise is empty. You can live in the most organized, well-kept house and still be miserable apart from Christ. And if you have Christ, your life can be absolute chaos and you can somehow live with rest and resolute faith in him right through the middle of it. How do we not fall for it? We remember who Christ is, what he has done for us, and who we are in him. And what is our story? We're filled. We're filled up. We're complete in him. We're buried and raised with him so that we will never really die. We're alive in him forevermore because all our sins have been taken care of through the sacrifice of Christ. And in that story, in Christ, you have all the fullness, freedom, and power you need for now and forever. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that Jesus is indeed all we got and all we need. Would you keep us from philosophies that would lead us to trust in something or someone else, trust in ourselves, and would you keep us coming back to you, coming back to your word, coming back to have the Spirit open our eyes afresh to see the real Christ so that we'd be able to spot whatever counterfeits come along, seeking our time, attention, hope, and dollars. Would you be with us? Would we know Christ's presence with us through our union with him day after day after day until the day that we see him face to face? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.